So there's, there's certain movies that, that we love because they have a happy ending. They give a new perspective on life. They make you think the villain's defeated, the ring's destroyed, uh, Gotham is saved, and the princess is rescued. Right? We all love movies like that, the feel-good movie of the year. Uh, but then there are movies that we've seen that don't end well at all. Um, in fact, they, they kind of finish maybe where they started. Uh, there is no hero left standing at the end. There's no great moral lesson to really take away or anything to be learned from. And, and the evil that you thought would be stopped forever is not. And, and what it becomes is, is the film becomes really just a, a way of speaking to the human condition, that it reveals something to us, that it tells us that um, this is just who we are as people. This is who we are uh, as a society. And, and they kind of expose uh, what theologians would call the total depravity of man. And one of those films is a movie called The Green Mile. Anybody seen it? Okay, it came out in 99. A lot of people have. Um, but it is, it is a movie about prison guards, about uh, death row prison guards during the Great Depression. And, and they are they're normal men. Uh, they, they see inmates in their final days of their sentences. They feed them, they deal with them, and they oversee their execution. I can't imagine this being an easy job at all. On, on what this does to people. But one day they, they get an inmate who is a, a large, powerful man named John Coffey. And he is a gentle giant. He is a model citizen in his time there on death row. And they slowly learn over the course of the film that John Coffey has the ability to heal people, that he can, he can literally heal people. He heals one prison guard of a bladder infection that he had been fighting for a long time. He brought a mouse back to life, and he actually expelled a demon out of a certain woman. And as you move throughout the film, you wonder, how could a man like this be in this situation? What did he do? What did he say? And you, you find over the course of the film that he is indeed innocent. But these, these prison guards, these, these executioners, if you will, um, they have no power to overturn anything. They have no power to change that. It's, it's totally out of their control. And so with, with much regret, with much hesitation, they have to oversee his and follow through with his execution. And the story ends with what feels like the only good thing in this world is struck away struck down and killed off and and you you leave the movie you turn the movie off with this sense that that yeah just this is just kind of who we are and this is where we are you felt sort of the same way you did at the beginning than you do at the end and, and if anything maybe you feel even worse and there's a little bit of hope sprinkled maybe throughout the course of the middle of the movie but then it's left kind of flat and and this is how we end the book of judges today um, we have been covering so much of this, gosh, for the past eight weeks or so, for the past two months, and we finished last week on the story of Samson. Samson is our final judge that we really come across, um, and, and this, the last couple chapters of this book can serve sort of as an appendix, okay? Um, just They sort of tell these short stories about the condition of Israel, and if you've been walking with us through this, um, there's been a theme lurking sort of in the background that God's people have done what's right in their own eyes, 
uh, that they would not dedicate themselves to the Lord, that they would not follow his commands, but rather they would get to choose what they thought was right. They got to choose what is good. They choose how to execute justice. They chose who to worship and how to do all of those things. And um, this has been the song playing in the background throughout the entire book as we have talked about it. And uh, we've walked through the lives of these judges and, and what the remaining uh, chapters do is it gives us sort of this, this moral and spiritual insight to the people of God in the book of Judges. That this was their mindset. This is how they behaved. This is how they acted. And, and just like movies like The Green Mile, movies like other things sort of point to the total depravity of man, that's exactly what the book of Judges does here at the end. And so there's two main stories that you can read about at the end of Judges. We're going to focus on one of them. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 19. Okay, in Judges chapter 19, we are introduced to a man who we don't, aren't really given his name. And um, there are many times in the Bible that if you're not necessarily given names, that's a way of communicating to the reader that this is sort of the general feel. Like this is kind of just how people are and what people did, okay? So I'm gonna read through parts of, of chapter 19 just to sort of open the story to you and, um, and you'll, the story will tell itself, okay? So verse one, in those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine. This would be considered a second-class wife uh, sort of a, a servant, if you will, often treated as property, okay? This is the, the role of the concubine. Who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem to Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and, there wa and was there for, for, for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant, and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. You can jump down to verse 9. And then the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart. His father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in. So Jerusalem was not yet in the kingdom of Israel, the city of Jabus. Okay? It was ruled by the Jebusites. So we often think of Jerusalem as this is where Jesus you know, spent his final week. This is where he was crucified. This was the royal city of King David. Jerusalem is not in the picture yet. Okay, So they're, they're bypassing Jerusalem. No, we don't want to go there, okay? Verse 12, and his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. All right, so this man's stance, his perception is, we don't want to stay where these foreigners are, okay? We don't, we don't know them, we can't trust them, we don't want any part of them. Instead, we'll go a little bit further to, to Gibeah. 
And he said to the young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Okay, so Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes. These are our people, okay? We, we know them. We can trust them. This is a safer place to stay than Jabus, what would later become Jerusalem. That's his thinking, right? We tend to want to say, stay in safer places that maybe we're more familiar with, maybe more of our kin, people that we know, that sort of thing, okay? Verse 15. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down to the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. This was very odd because this culture is, the, especially even Middle Eastern culture to this day, is very hospitable. Okay, hospitable is, is the general rule that if someone needs something, you bring them in, you invite them in, you wash their feet, you feed them, you make sure they have the things that they need. No one is doing that for this man and his concubine and his servants. So this is, this is kind of odd to them. Verse 16, And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace to you. I will care for all of your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So apparently there's, there's some dangers. There's, there's something not right about spending the night in the square, as you will soon see. Verse 21. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Verse 22. And as they were making their hearts merry... Maybe throwing back some cold ones, telling jokes, whatever you do to make your heart merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. I love that the Bible says worthless fellows. Like that's, that's a term that kind of crosses generations because we probably know plenty of worthless fellows today, don't we? Plenty. We probably have a different name for them, okay? Um, worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Okay? They wanted to know him. They wanted to violate him in a sexual way. Um, first of all, the first time that I came to Columbus, I'm glad that whenever I stayed in the hotel, there were no worthless fellows waiting for me in the lobby. Okay? <laughs> That might have made Bersheba a hard sell for me at, at that point. But, but let's put a bookmark here for a minute because if any of you have read through Genesis, this story may sound familiar. It seems like we've been here before. Is this where I read that story or somewhere else? Um, it's funny, in Genesis 19, we see a story very similar to this one that we find in Judges 19. In fact, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is in the city of Sodom with two angels, okay, that, that look like men. Two angels are with him. And where is he looking to stay? He is looking to stay in the town square. And these angels say, come with me. Let's, let's stay in this house. You do not need to be on the streets. And so they wanted Lot to be brought in for the very same reason. And the story goes is that the, the wickedness of Sodom was so great 
uh, and so severe that God destroys Sodom and turns it into a heap of ashes. Okay, so this is this is what we saw in in what the Bible records as the most evil city that these men were seeking to do the very same thing to Lot, and here we, here we are, God's people, God's country. These are people who ha- should have hearts for the Lord, um, are doing the very same thing that we saw in Sodom. Okay? So when you, when you have a chance, I encourage you to go back, read those two chapters, and see how similar those really are. But in verse 23, it reads this way. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. So the master of the house is, is being noble, standing up for his guests until he says this. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out with them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. It's just such an awful story. Like this is... This is the kind of things that nightmares are made of. Verse 26, And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This poor woman. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and he went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her, hand, with her hands on the threshold. And so then he leans down to her very tenderly, very sweetly, and says to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. So, story gets better. Verse 29, And when he entered the house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take, it, take counsel, and speak. This is, a, this is such an awful story. Like who in their right mind would actually preach a sermon on something like this, right? Um, I, I told you that we would cover the book of Judges and so we're covering the book of Judges. Um, so this, this is a message that was sent to all of the people of Israel. This, this woman's remains was sent to all of the different corners, okay? So we're going to pick it up in Judges 20, okay? I'm almost done reading the text, and then, then we'll talk about it. Judges 20, verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, or Beersheba, whichever you prefer. Huh? Shout out to us, right? Including the land of Gilead and the congregation assembled, assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. Verse 3. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And so the Levite, the Levite's telling a story now. He says, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and he said, I came to Gibeah that belonged to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Okay, what did he leave out? Oh yeah, I threw her outside. Okay, 
Verse 6, so I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Okay, did not one person stop this man and say, dude, could you have just sent a note? Like, you could have just sent us a note and told us what happened. You sent me her pancreas in a box. Like, this was not necessary, okay? And so the text tells us that the people of God, the people of Israel assembled as one man. They are, they are unified in this. And, and we can all agree that this is an incredibly wicked thing, that this is just un, unfathomable. And so they rally as one and they come against the tribe of Benjamin. And they ask the tribe of Benjamin, turn these criminals over. Okay? These vile, wicked men, these worthless fellows, give them to us so that we can seek justice. And so the tribe of Benjamin, sometimes we're like this, we're very tribal. We tell ourselves, you know what? These might be worthless fellows, but these are our worthless fellows, right? It's kind of like you can't, you know, I can talk bad about my brother or sister, but nobody else can talk bad about my brother and sister. And so the tribe of Benjamin would not give up these men. They said that you would need to fight us, okay, if you want to come against these men. And so they do. And so you have 11 of the 12 tribes coming together and, and arming themselves and going to war, having a civil war, okay, over, over this atrocity. And so as you can imagine, uh, the tribe of Benjamin is wiped out. But not only, not wiped out completely, but Israel, they march into their cities. Uh, they, they kill their men, women, and children. They take justice to the next level. Israel is deciding um, this, is, this is justice in our eyes. Okay? We're going to take what you did to this woman and we're going to almost completely wipe out your tribe. And so what's left standing is about 600 men. Okay? All the women, all the children uh, have been decimated. And the elders of the tribe of Israel sort of wake themselves up and say, you know, we went to war against them. We killed off most of them. But we can't let one of the 12 tribes totally like, be wiped away. Like we've got we've to give them wives because now you have men who, who have no women. They, they can't reproduce. The tribe cannot continue. And so what they decide to do in order to give these 600 men wives, they go and they raid another village, killing off the married men, the married women. And they take for them 400 virgins and carry them back to these men. How would you like to be one of those lucky ladies? Okay? And so now we are left with, with 600 men. They have 400 women. We're missing 200. Okay? We, 200 men now need wives. And those men were allowed to go and kidnap other women throughout the countryside so that they could secure for themselves wives. And this is how Judges ends. Rape, a woman being cut into pieces... Genocide, invasion, human trafficking. And we all know the final line in the book of Judges, don't we? I've beat it over your heads for weeks. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of gives you warm fuzzies all over, doesn't it? Right? The book of Judges sheds light on the human condition on the total depravity of man that if left to ourselves, if left to us, we will choose what is selfish, what is self-seeking, in many cases, what is completely evil. We are incapable of saving ourselves and don't even need the need, see the need to save ourselves. 
We, we are hopeless without the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and listen, even when mankind, okay, apart from the Lord, has tried to solve some of the world's problems, we tend to just make things worse. Like, you can probably think of examples where we've tried to improve this or make things better or do that, um, but, but either, either our, our own feebleness, our own incompetence, or, or just the, the evil that we are often get in the way. Okay, so a, a great historical example of this is when, when the British Empire ruled over India, a lot of the British soldiers complained of the cobra problems that were in Delhi, Okay. Um, we can all agree that if we had cobras in our community, that would be a huge problem. And so the British government told the locals, if you bring us dead cobras, we will pay you for them because there's such a problem. And so they, they started this incentive program and the locals would begin bringing them dead cobras. But over time, they noticed that the problem really wasn't getting any better. And so as they began to do a deeper dive into this, they discovered that the locals were breeding cobras... And when they needed money, they would turn the dead snakes into the authorities. And so, obviously, they, they ended the payment program very quickly. And now having all of these cobras that had no value, the locals just released them out into the streets, making the problem worse. Right? We have good intentions, right? We want to solve world hunger. Let's send money over to these, these groups in Africa but often we see their government officials keeping that money and the people begin to starve. Um, if we, some people believe if we just had better education, if we had education, if we had access to resources, all that's good, I'm all for education. But the truth is, is that we are more educated today than we've ever been as a country. Like we've got people walking around with more degrees than Fahrenheit that can't add anything of virtue, can't have add anything of economics into our, into our systems. Um, they can tell us a lot about left-handed Russian dance theory, but can't really contribute in any other way beyond that. Um, and some would argue that, that we're educated beyond our usefulness too, that sometimes we know too much and that keeps us from, from acting. Um, but what, what if we save the planet? Like, we got to think about all these emissions that are harming the ozone layer. Uh, we need more electric cars and paper straws, right? That's what we need. That'll solve it all. Only it turns out that we don't have the power grid to charge the cars. And paper straws actually leak toxins into the fluids we drink and cause health problems, right? If people could be um, liberated sexually and choose who they want to love and, and choose their own gender, then we could just be free to be ourselves. The, the fact of the matter is, is that when a culture turns its back on God, it begins, it begins to affect mainly women and children. Okay? It's women and children who are experimented on. When our culture walks away from the Lord uh, and do what's right in its own eyes, all of a sudden women are run out of their competitive sports because a man is confused on who he is and he wants to enter into a woman's weightlifting contest. Right? When a culture turns its back on the Lord, it, it is children who are experimented on and are given hormone blockers so that girls can become boys, uh, gives them injections that cause them to be sterile at a young age, all in the name of progress, all in the name of health care. We put on drag shows for children, all in the name of liberation and education. Apart from God, we make things worse and not better. 
Okay, and there is, there is a, um, there's a reason that when you go to any bookstore that the self-help section is one of the largest that you see. Everyone's trying to find ways to fix themselves. Everyone's trying to find a way to fix society and everybody's got ideas and everybody's got different ways of doing that. But, but the final chapters of the book of Judges is a, is a picture, is a glimpse of how societies not centered on God function. They, they have to worship something. They find something to give their praise to. They find something to fix their eyes to. And, and when they do that, they often get to choose what is right in their own eyes. They often get to choose to do uh, how, how to make things better and, and what's good and all these things. And so as we read through the scriptures and as we read through the pages of Judges and as we come to the end of it, there is no, there is no pagan God to blame in this story. Uh, there, is, there is no pagan or other group of people to blame for the oppression that we see, the rape we see, the murder, the massacre, the kidnapping. All of that was done within house. No one else to blame but themselves. Israel finds out that it, it is its own worst enemy. And sadly, that can be just as true of you and I. That they are a people in search of a king just like we are. And one of the resources that I've been using um, in, in going through the book of Judges is, is by a man named Tim Keller. He's a pastor who recently passed away. And, and as, I've, as I've harped on this last verse in the book of Judges, I want to read to you the very last quote that he has in his book. And he says this. It says, And to this day we are a people in search of a king, someone to rule us, and someone to rescue us. There is only one man who provides that what we are looking for. We must look to the greatest king, the ultimate judge, or we will serve a false one. For you and I, our hope is different. While they look forward to a king and hoped for a king, we find hope in a king that's already been given to us. We don't have to look beyond the horizon for him. We don't have to search into the stars and, and await his coming and wait for those stars to align. But we have been given a king in the birth, in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who comes to make all things new. Who forgives us of our sin. Who gives us new life and new hope. The book of Judges yearns, longs for that whereas you and I can find rest in that. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for your patience. God, I thank you for the patience that you bestow and display in, in the word of God in general, but especially in the book of Judges. Uh, we see a people who are so depraved. We see a people who, who turn their backs on you, worship other things, who are capable of such uh, atrocities, Lord. But God, you continue to be faithful to them. You love them through them. You, you love them unconditionally um, because that's just who you are. And so, Father, I think that if there's any takeaways for us, Lord, it, it's, it's to identify in ourselves the way that we are broken. And just as they longed for a hero, just as they, they longed for the need to be made whole, we can find our wholeness in you. We can find our rest and our peace in you. But Lord, it's up to us whether or not we will choose to hear your word, 
whether or not we will choose to submit our lives to you, submit our agendas to you, our schedules, because Lord, without you, we are hopeless. Without you, any, any good thing that we can attempt uh, will be in vain. And so, Father, I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would make us new. I pray that we would live into the life that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.